This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Um, I just want to once again welcome Bruce and Paul Holler, who really needs no introduction to this group, or at least most of this group. They've been a frequent visitor to Austin Zen Center, a former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, and a senior Dharma teacher, uh, also teaching at uh, in Northern Ireland and in Slovenia, and coming to us from Tassajara, is that correct? That is correct. So... Um, we're very, very delighted that you could find time for us, and welcome, and thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. It, it's a marvel of our age. You know, in the, in the past month or so, I've taught in Ireland, I've taught in Slovenia, I've taught in San Francisco, now Austin, and I haven't left Tassajara. It's actually a lovely combination. To, to be here and to be able to contact so many uh, sanghas. What I'm hoping to talk about today is um, maybe in, in grand terms, we could call a Buddhist response to um, the issues of our time, you know? Black Lives Matter and all that's implied in that, the economic impact of um, the pandemic, the anxieties in, in, of the pandemic in itself creates, and, and how we as uh, well-intentioned people who um, are engaging in Buddhist practice, how do we respond to all of that? So a simple topic. Uh, and of course, I'm saying the opposite, a formidable topic. I do think the spirit of Zen practice is that when we're presented with something formidable, we turn towards it uh, because that's where the intensity of our life is. That when we turn away from it, then we're separating from something powerful and, and, uh, and, and something that will have impact and influence whether we like it or not. I liken it to uh, the, the flow of the ox herding pictures that we search for the ox, you know, we, we, we look for telltale signs even though we don't quite know what it is, but we're turning towards it. And I think of these times as something similar. Certainly it is for me, a, a turning towards something, the complexity of the society, um, my own um, reluctance or ignoring of the ills of our society that are now boiling over. Recently, I was reading an article by uh, Rizma Menachem and, and Robin D'Angelo. And one phrase in particular stood out for me, um, where Rizma was saying, you know, any identity is susceptible to corruption. The word he used was actually pathology. 
pathology, corruption, misuse. Uh, and and it, it drew back into my mind, you know, I, I co-teach a chaplaincy course with, with three other people. Um, there's myself uh, from Northern Ireland, raised Catholic. There's Gil Franzdo from Norway, raised as Gnostic. And Jennifer Black, raised in the East Coast of the United States from a, a secular Jewish family. And then the fourth person is Christina Fernandez. And she, her background is half Mexican and half Native American Indian. And we were asking ourselves, well, how can we, uh, how can we take in the sensibilities that are arising for us as a society? How can we incorporate them more into our uh, chaplaincy training program? And, uh, and Gil was suggesting, uh, well, we could get them on to take the Harvard implicit bias test. You know, it's something you can do online and, um, and it helps you see your implicit biases. And Christina started to chuckle and she said, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but that's a very white solution. You know? And I thought, how wonderfully ironic that in proposing the Harvard implicit bias test, we're expressing our own implicit biases. And, and I was thinking of that in relation to Resma Menachem's statement, you know, that any identity is susceptible to, to become, um, or to use the word he used, pathologized. And, and, and here's where my mind went. I thought, well, does our personal history, you know, tell us something? You know, does it offer us clues? So my personal history is like this. I, I grew up in, in, in a society divided between two religious identities, both Christian, Catholic and Protestant. The Protestant were the minor majority and the Catholics were the minority. It has a long history, uh, hundreds of years of history that created this particular setup, as is the case with most setups. Uh, the impact on me was uh, economic. Uh, the, the Catholic minority were deprived of certain opportunities to, in, in terms of work. So I, I grew up in an impoverished Catholic neighborhood. You were also within the society deprived of more or less the right to vote. You had to have property, you had to own property to be able to vote. And most Catholics didn't have property. So even though seemed like we had a democracy. There were actually no cap Catholic representation in the, the parliament. The religious identity being a minority 
that also was subject to oppression. There were uh, blatant anti-Catholic uh, prescriptions like written on gable wall endings. Uh, it, it was an identity that when you were out in society, you uh, did your best not to make evident. It's only when you returned to your own neighborhood that you could uh, relax. And then to cap it all, Ireland is next door to England. And the English had a long history of ruling Ireland, which also entailed a certain amount of oppression. I remember when I was very young, going to London and seeing signs that said, no dogs are Irish allowed. So this, this was, as you can imagine, this had an, all these things had an impact. And then I asked myself, what, what is that residual bias of all that? You know, part of it is I am sensitized as I think many people in Ireland are to the plight of the underdog, you know, in the neighborhood where I grew up, when, when George Floyd was, was killed, they um, had protest marches in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. They, they painted a mural of him on the wall. A sensitivity towards the, um, the plight of the underdog. Um, I would also say I have something of um, a bias against, you know, institutionalized authority, uh, which actually became very interesting when I became the abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, you know, which, which brought with it a lot of institutional authority. <laughs> um, and then, the, for a variety of, of uh, reasons, which for the sake of brevity, I won't go into. Northern Ireland boiled over into uh, a violence. The Catholics and Protestants were fighting each other. They were bombing and shooting and rioting. And, and they divided the city of Belfast and other parts of Northern Ireland into are completely Protestant or completely Catholic. And, um, and I decided to leave. I thought I was 21 and I thought, I don't really uh, feel identified with either side. Actually, I don't at all feel identified. Well, maybe I feel somewhat identified with the Catholic, but I don't identify with violence, you know, a violence expression of beliefs. Uh, or ideals, and and I don't want to be uh, trapped in a position of having to choose one or the other. So I left, and in leaving, even though I left for those reasons, but in leaving, I gained a great privilege. I, I had the good fortune of being able to travel wherever I wanted, with a few exceptions. 
and, and I had the autonomy and wherewithal to be able to do that. Um, I live in the journal as I was traveling. I lived in Japan, I lived in Thailand. And there, being a Caucasian foreigner was actually a great plus. The Japanese at that time, over 40 years ago, they hadn't seen so many foreigners. Most of the foreigners they'd seen were in movies. So we kind of associated with in that way. Uh, when I lived in Thailand, I became a monk, a Buddhist monk. And the Thai people thought, well, you must have done something marvelous in your past lives to have the great merit of coming to Thailand and resuming your practice. Uh, so, so I received great benefits from there. Um, I was able to um, step away from many of the forms of oppression that I had suffered through as a child. Um, I don't think I went anywhere where um, the, the, there was tension between Catholics and Protestants. Most people had never heard of the animosities in Northern Ireland. And even if they had, they had a hard time making sense of it. And, and certainly not in Asia, where I spent my uh, travel and most of my traveling time. So I was able to step out of that world and step out of that oppression. Uh, I was able to step out of the economic oppression. I was able to step out of the societal, institutionalized oppression. And, and I remember at one point, I was saying to myself, I'm almost as far away from Northern Ireland as I can be without leaving the planet. You know? And who knows, maybe if I'd have been able to leave the planet, I'd have chosen that option too. And then I came to the United States. Um, and, and by this point, I was uh, very involved in, in Buddhism and in particular in Zen practice. And I came to San Francisco Zen Center. It, and my upbringing in Northern Ireland, you know, part of the characteristic of it was uh, community, family, and religious identity. And at that time in Ireland, all three of those were woven together. Uh, being Irish Catholic, we had big families, living in a culture, a, a society, where when you're married, you stay married for life. So your in-laws were really a substantial part of your family too. So we operated more in a tribal manner, you know? When you were part of a family of, as my family was seven siblings, and then all our aunts and uncles had all their families. And, and, and so when I came to San Francisco Zen Center, 
without really thinking about it, I related to it as my new big family. Yeah? Wasn't that different from the tribe I belonged to, the tribal way I belonged to uh, being in Northern Ireland? So it suited me well. It had uh, a strong religious, spiritual identity and practice common to my upbringing. So that suited me well too. It was almost exclusively white with a strong Japanese influence. And that suited me well too. My, that was my, how my upbringing was and my introduction to Zen practice was in Japan. So, and then recently, quite recently, the last couple of months, I've been taking all that as a kind of an inventory to give me some um, clues. I don't know how well you know the ox herding pictures, but the first ox herding picture is the ox herder searching for traces, for signs, you know. How can we discover our implicit biases when the ways we're inclined to explore them is also an expression of implicit bias? Like my friend Christina, the co-teacher, saying, can you see? She said, can you see how that has its own implicit bias? You said, if I went back to the native, in, native Indian, American Indian parts of my family, and I told them that's what we were going to do. We were going to study the Harvard implicit bias test. She said, they just chuckle and laugh. And to my mind, this is the dilemma of our Zen practice. That we're inclined to relate to its request from the biases that are part of how we've come to be the person we are. We all have a history, you know, every single one of us. And in recounting what I just recounted, in a way it's a suggestion to you um, if you're interested in your biases, maybe you could think about, hmm, what was it like when I was growing up? You know, what, what were the formative examples? You know, like Gil, Gil Franstow saying, well, there was, my parents dismissed any artifacts of religion, you know? And, and, and so those kind of notions of religious bias or influence just doesn't play a part of uh, his conditioning. Mine was quite different, you know, there was lots of influence. So for each of us to reflect on that, you know, what, what could my biases be? And then to add to that, you know, and, and I think for that, for each of us, it, it's like 
many aspects of our practice. It's a lifelong practice. Because those biases, they evolve, they adapt. You know, as I was saying, when I came, when I left Ireland, they evolved. When I came to San Francisco Zen Center, they, they um, adapted to my new environment. But being here at Tassajara, I literally feel very at home at Tassajara. This, this sense of, it's in a narrow valley, for those of you who don't know what the structure of it is, the topography of it is, there's a narrow valley, maybe about half a mile long, maybe less, with steep sides, and all the buildings are clustered in the base of the valley. And we have the beautiful hot springs and we're surrounded by 130,000 acres of wilderness. Powerful place. And in this valley, because I think of the topography of it and the Zen practice, there's an intimacy, a communal intimacy that has the flavor of a familial intimacy. And, and I think of these as positive aspects, you know? Like when I think of my own background, I think, okay, here were the oppressive, difficult uh, influences, and then here's where the positive, you know? And I think, oh, how interesting that I've sort of recreated the positive. And then maybe, uh, in a more challenging way, I could pick up, you know, Rejma Menachem's statement and said, and, and how have I pathologized them? I, you know, I'm a little hesitant to use that kind of terminology because uh, I think most of the ways we've been influenced, uh, it's important to remember that we engage most of us, especially those of us who come to some spiritual prospect or practice or some way of trying to have a positive relationship to life, that we're well-intentioned. And of course, I'll get back to that because that also can be uh, something we need to be wary of. But my understanding of our practice is that it's challenging us to be both radically honest about who we are and how we are and how we're behaving, and then also deeply compassionate towards the human condition and respectful of each other's sincerity. No. And to put that maybe in counterpoint to the Buddhist teaching that within our, uh, our deep impulse to, to live, be safe, to thrive, we, we assert a personal agenda. 
you know, it has its own desires and aversions and perplexities. You know? And then all that, all that I've said up to now, to me, it, it gives rise to the efficacy of the foundation of our practice. The, the, the foundation of Zen practice is to be constantly taught by what appears in our life, to be, to be taught to see clues about liberation. And, and, and that would take me back to this notion of turning towards. I would say, having come back, having come from Northern Ireland to United States and sort of recreated my own uh, positive influences, it creates the susceptibility of a certain kind of complacency. You know? a, the assumption of privilege. We're very privileged here at Tassajara. We have wonderful vegetarian food. We live in a very beautiful natural surrounding. We don't even have locks on our doors. Never mind lock our doors. We don't even have them if we wanted to. And there's no need for them unless we want to keep the raccoons out of our cabins. You know? and, and we're with despite the times we, uh, you know, find annoyance with each other, we're with well-intentioned, uh, honest in people of integrity. Yeah. And how that can have its own seduction, you know, its own way of um, letting us just sort of feel like, well, this is how life is. And, and forgetting, uh, like in my in my own life, forgetting that this is not how life is. You know, this 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 is an extraordinary and unique uh, event. Uh, most of our world is spasming with uh, conflict and oppression. You know. And turning towards it, not so much to find fault with ourselves because of our fortunate privilege, but to not let it become a pathology, you know, to turn towards um, the difficult questions, to turn towards the 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 significance of the Bodhisattva vow, that it's all-inclusive, you know? that it's not to create an enclave of privilege. It, it, it's to take on the, the formidable questions of the persistence within the human condition of bias, of ignoring, of searching, for personal well-being 
and forgetting collective well-being. Sometimes I think what just came to mind was the notion of evil genius. The evil genius of whoever brought, kidnapped people in Africa and brought them to United States and made them slaves, you know, to destroy their community, to destroy their family, to destroy their traditions, and to destroy their religion. And when I think of my own life in those early years of oppression, um, they were very difficult. In some ways, in, in, practically and both emotionally and socially, and how much more important community, family, and a spiritual bonding were. In, in how painfully obvious now it is that uh, if we take any sector of our population and deprive them of those benefits for hundreds of years, they will be devastated. I mean, if you look at the history of the United States, Almost every new group, when the Irish came to the United States, they were sent off to the coal mines. They rebelled. They tried to demand safer conditions and more, more acceptable and humane treatment. And they were shot. When you look at the Chinese, they were exploited. The Italians were diminished, you know, all, almost every gender, every category of race and ethnicity and religion, when it arrived here, it was mistreated. And yet there's a certain sector, certainly the African-American in America, I think there's good argument to say was singled out for uh, the harshest treatment. Maybe the Native American Indians also were singled out. But actually they were somewhat able to keep their traditions and religion. So a formidable, fierce, demanding request made of us. And then our practice saying, um, so be it. This is uh, the history we've inherited. And also, so it has brought us to practice. So somewhere in the midst of all that, uh, the nobility of the human spirit has been able to uh, sustain itself. And I think it's important to remember that. The original mind that is innate within us too. And then what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you where my mind went which is 
to the six paramitas. I think of the six paramitas, uh, which for those of you who don't know, is, is a Buddhist practice that also is um, implicit in Zen practice. And there's six attributes to it. Uh, the, the, the first one is uh, giving and receiving. The second one is sustaining the activities that support practice and, and the virtuous way of being that practice enables. And the third one is uh, patience. That way, you know, if you look at the greater arc of um, of human history of activity, you know, and and maybe all we really know is back to the Romans and the Greeks. But the conquering army has always oppressed the 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 the, the uh, societies that they defeated. They took everything of value if, that they could. They raped the women and they enslaved the men. That's our human history. Somehow, that's uh, part of what we do. This is our cautionary tale. And, and if you look at the arc of human history, I would say, this is probably a, a debatable point, I think I think we are actually improving, you know. At least now, most of us on the planet think that is utterly inappropriate. Not to say it doesn't still happen; it does. But I think we've shifted somehow the center of gravity into not thinking that's the the fruits of war. And I think this notion of Mutual giving and receiving, the conduct that fosters virtuous being, and a deep patience with the human condition. But there, there's a challenge for us, you know. What's the difference between a deep patience with the human condition and a sort of uh, unexamined complacency, or even maybe more active, an avoidance of things that would be fruitful to attend to, the challenges. So that's the first three. And then the second three, the, the, uh, the Sanskrit word is virya, which means, essentially it means energy, but in another way, it can be taken to mean a, a persistent effort. How do we sustain our, our, an expression and an engagement in our best intentions? And then the next one is absorption. Uh, how do we live in relationship to our life you know, rather than and get caught in a, in, a, in a kind of abstraction. I, d I didn't ask Christina directly, what, what do you mean? Why would your 
Native American family laugh at that. But I think part of it was, it's a kind of an abstraction. Like rather than doing something, let's go and sit in the corner and talk about doing something. Or, or introspectively reflect on it. So absorption, being part of, or that beautiful word that Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, coined, interbeing. I often thought that that word was an expression of Thich Nhat Hanh's genius. Uh, there, there's a, a term in Sanskrit, in a very integral and significant part of Buddhist thought, uh, shunyata, which up until then, was almost completely translated into English as emptiness. And then Thich Nhat Hanh translated it as uh, interbeing. And I always attributed that to his, his marvelous intellect and creative genius. And actually, then I read that he said he was a gringo. And he was teaching on shunyata. And he tried on various words on the sangha there. And he'd try on a word and he'd say, well, what do you think of this word? And I go, oh, not that good. And then he said, interbeing. And they said, yeah, that works. So how, uh, how we're not in this alone. It doesn't depend upon our individual genius that we will support each other. This is immersion in interbeing. And this beautiful notion of the Bodhisattva way, everyone, all being is included. And if we want to turn it inside out, we can say all being is offering its support to our individual practice. And then the last uh, paramita, or the, the sixth one, is uh, prajna, which is insight. And, um, and insight with, within the thinking of Buddhism it, it has a range of meanings, and, and so I, I'd like to uh, dwell on it for a few minutes. Because to me, when I thought of this notion of, you know, the inevitability of our implicit bias, it's hard for us to see. I thought, oh, isn't that the challenge? of cultivating insight. A couple of nights ago, here in the abbot's cabin at Tassajara, I was mediating between two students. You know? Even here in paradise, people have interpersonal challenges. Hard to believe, I know. And I said to them both, I sat them down facing each other and I said, 
the way you see this other person, you know, annoying, difficult to deal with, you know, and other unsavory uh, characteristics. You brought the bias to see that way with you when you came to Zen Center. It was prepackaged, you know. It's seeing this person the way you're seeing them now and feeling the thing, the feel, the thoughts and feelings that you're having about them. Um, this is your history. Not to say the, the present experience is not relevant. Of course it's relevant, but it's also influenced. And, and so I said to them, now look at this person and, and, and recognize these strong feelings, these opinions and judgments you have are indicative of your history. This kind of insight yeah. is a feature of Sen of Kasahara, uh, the Blue Jays. Um, it, it's, it's indicative of your history and without insight, it compounds the, the pain in your life. And with insight, it starts to open up and give clues about the path of liberation. And so in the article that I read, it was a conversation between, as I said, Rizma Manak and, and, and Robin D'Angelo. And so when he's talked about the capacity to pathologize any ID, she picked up on it and she said, you know, we can either take it as given and act it out, or we can go into it, we can explore it. But when I was talking to these two students, I said to them, and this is not an easy matter, if we were wonderfully equanimous and settled, and free from any bias, then we would resolve this, the, the difference between you, the painful difficulties between you, we, could, we would resolve it in a matter of moments. But the passion of your life comes forth. The insight needs the patience. It needs the perseverance. It needs the generosity of giving and receiving. And sometimes the insight is the fruit of the, the influence of those factors. And then sometimes it initiates. You know? So I thought a couple of nights ago, I thought, oh, well, let's start with the insight and see if it loosens up. 
the intensity, the, uh, the intensity of conviction. I know I'm right because I have a strong feeling. And I know you're wrong because I have a strong feeling. And how do we relate to that? How do we let it be a teaching that opens the path of liberation in contrast to getting more entrenched and narrow in our thinking so that certain things we're just not noticing them? So reflection. Uh, asking ourselves, what, what could my biases be? What, how can I look at my history and ask that question? What could the things that I've found supportive be? How can I look at my history and ask that? How do, how do I shape and influence and think about the notion of the request of practice. In a way, we might say a contemplative practice, an aspect, to put it in Christian terms, of spiritual formation, you know? a refinement of our intentionality as we practice. Then another aspect of insight is um, as many of us have experienced, that when we practice and we settle and, and we spend a dedicated period of time of not getting caught up in our thoughts, in our feelings and our memories, uh, and not sustaining the world according to me, but actually letting it loosen and somewhat dissipate. And then, and I suspect all of us had had these moments, something sort of pops up. It's like something outside of the world, according to me, expresses itself. And often we think of that as an insight. And often how it takes shape is that it's a new way of relating to something that abides within our being. The notion, the function of something coming from without, in, rather than just being part of our usual way. And, and that way, that aspect of our practice that's saying, drop off the self. Or as Mary Oliver would say, a silence within which another voice may speak. So that kind of insight. And I think the contemplative one and the arising from beyond the self, I think they support each other. And in some ways, they're different. But I also think they support each other. And then in, within Buddhist teaching, the third way is um, it's not mediated by the thought process. And I think in Zen practice in particular, it's, um, 
you know, Reshma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, where he's talking about the embodied being. And I, I would say, not to just say the psychosomatic being, you know, the way we hold our life experiences in our body. Uh, we hold our, our emotions and other psychologically significant aspects in our body. But the, the, something in the life force of being is flowing through us, is acting all the time. And it's not accessible, it's not discoverable by thinking. It's discovered by experiencing. And I think all of us have had moments when we were absorbed in that experiencing and it taught us something beyond words, beyond ideas. And Dogen Zenji, the, the finder of Soto Zen in Japan, you know, he talks about the pivotal moment when he was with his teacher, Rijing, in China, and he had such an experience. And then when he came back to Japan and he wrote his, 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 his many fascicled uh, Shobogenzo. Uh, there's a thread of referencing the time when he dropped it all and discovered something fundamental. Uh, so that kind of insight too. And I think it serves us not just as a spiritual indicator, but it also serves us as a um, almost like a humbling reference to how we hold the human condition. This great drive to be alive. And, and this great challenge of how can we become wise and compassionate and skillful about how we relate to it. And then I would like to end by reading a poem. It's a poem by a, a Turkish poet, Nazim Ahmed, And he talks about, he, it's a letter to his son. And he's, he's telling his son, What's, what things in life are precious, you know? The sky, the river, the earth, the plants. And he says, and cherish all this, but cherish people above all. And then he continues in a wonderful, lyrical, and charming way. And, it, and the, with the refrain of each verse is, and people above all. And, and I think there's, there's a deep challenge as we turn towards these formidable questions that we cherish each other. This, this is not an exercise in fault finding. Yes, there are ferocious and utterly objectionable injustices to approach them 
with, with a kindness and a compassion. We don't have to uh, look for evil that needs to be punished. That we bring an insight, a deep insight to this activity of, of discovering in our society now the path of liberation. From the society I grew up in, you know, Catholicism and, and Protestantism, and they, they both extol the virtues of a loving God, but they weaponized it and, and turned it into reason for violence uh, towards each other. And it was only when that exhausted itself that reconciliation and reparation started to become possible. Not to ignore what happened, but to hold it in a compassionate insight. That, that, that is my notion of the path of liberation. So, those are the thoughts I cooked up sitting here in the abbot's cabin at Tassahara. I hope some of that prompts you to have your own thoughts your own feelings. <laughs> Thank you.